Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. It is great to see you. Why don't you open your Bibles to the book of Romans? We are in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. And we'll be looking today at verses uh, 6 through 13. Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 13. so thankful to God for Pastor Ron Jewer's sermon last Sunday as he took us through the beginning of Romans chapter 9 and the tear-filled parchment that he spoke of as Paul is writing this letter. And it's in that spirit that I want to read the passage and then pray and then we'll dive in. I'm going to pick up in verse 4 of Romans chapter 9 and read through verse 13. Paul speaking of his kinsmen according to the flesh, his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. He says, verse 4, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done anything either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, and Esau I hate it. Let's pray. Father, help us to see today that your word has not failed. And because of that, help us to trust you. Moment by moment, day by day. This is the core of the Christian walk. That we would take you at your word. I remember the very first verse we ever memorized as a church. Every word of God proves true. And he is a shield to those who take refuge in him. So Father, I believe this. I pray your people believe this, that every word of yours proves true. And because of that, we can bank all of our hope upon you and your word. And we can hide in you and know that you are our refuge and strength and abundant help in time of trouble. So please give us faith today. Give us a gladness that we trust Christ. May he be cherished today and exalted in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. My basketball bracket is an epic fail. <laughs> epic fail. 
NCAA March Madness, which for those of you who are not sports fans, uh, there's a basketball tournament kind of going on uh, in this world right now. So, um, as I filled out my brackets, I filled out two. I uh, filled out more than that, but the two that I really had most hope for. One was entitled Sean Cordell, picking with his heart. The other one was Sean Cordell, picking with his head. And I picked with my heart the Tennessee Volunteers, who is a team that I uh, grew up loving. They never had a basketball team. Now they have a basketball team only to, once again, let me down. So it was like they build up your hopes only to dash them on the rocks. And so they, last, they lost last night, and so my bracket had Tennessee winning. And so needless to say, it's not faring so well. Epic fail. Failure is a very interesting thing. There's, I remember growing up, and it still actually is going on today, America's Funniest Home Videos, right? An entire TV show dedicated to the epic failures of many people who recorded them on video and then posted them, and then they were so epic in their failure, they became broadcast on national TV. And we like to watch those things. They're a lot of fun, and, you know, when people slip and fall for some reason, we for, you know, it's okay that they almost got a concussion or, you know, some animal almost, you know, bit their hand off. Whatever it was, you know, we just love these senses of epic fails. But at the core of life, there's many times that failure really isn't a laughing matter. Failure is something that's pretty deep and painful at times. Failure is something that we personally feel, every one of us has. Many times we personally feel like we have failed. We didn't accomplish the goal we wanted to accomplish. We didn't do what we said we would do. We forgot the very thing we were supposed to remember. We attempted something only to fall short. We lost our temper. We gave in to the temptation. We failed. And the phrase, I failed, is really difficult. It hurts. And many times it hurts because we attach that falling short to our very identity. You hear it in the phrase that shifts from, I failed, to, I'm a failure. Identity. It shifts to the core of our very essence. We make a mistake. I'm a failure. And that statement, that belief system that you are how you act, it can only lead to depression. A sense of, I can't try anymore. I'm not going to get back on the horse again. I'm done. But there's good news. Good news for people like you and me who fail, make mistakes quite often, the good news is this, that for all of those who attempted and failed, that does not determine who you are. It's not your identity. And here's why. Our God and Savior Jesus Christ, He did not fail as He went to the cross. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He was raised from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of the Father to declare one thing. He did not fail. And every word of his proves true. There's not a loophole in that. He did what he 
said he was going to do so that all of us who fail can put our hope not in our external performance but in one who performed in our place. And our identity is now not in what we have done or failed to do. Our identity is in a Savior who did not fail. And therefore, we can be forgiven, restored, and even in failure, there is hope. Because we've heard in Romans 8, 28, our God is working all things, whether it be suffering or sin, for our good to make us more like Jesus. So whether your failure is like a, as a student or as a child, as a parent or as a spouse, as an employee, I just encourage you on the front end, this is free and extra. It's a little beyond where the sermon is even going, but I just want to lay it out before you to surrender that failure and pain to the Lord. It's not your identity. Your identity is redeemed, died for, and loved. That's what the cross tells us. Let it sink in. You can trust the Lord to make you more like Jesus through your failures. However, let me shift backwards towards where we're headed. This does mean that people fail people all the time. And just as you have failed, you have probably been failed against, right? And it hurts. It's painful. And even though failure or sin is a human experience that we've all committed, it still hurts when it happens against you. When what you hoped for or dreamed for or what you counted on, it didn't go according to plan. You felt betrayed. And when it happens, you struggle to trust that person. This is where the gospel comes in. That we have to look at our own story, how God has rescued us from failure so that we can begin to love those who failed against us. But this is why Romans 9 is a mammoth deal. It's huge. Romans 9 is a huge deal because what if God has failed? We're not just talking about relational pain. We're talking about the uprooting of everything that we've banked our life on. You are the result of your performance, and there's no way out of it. Your eternity is massively insecure because you can't rescue yourself. If God has failed, then you cannot trust his words. God is the only being, as Pastor John Piper respectfully said, that is stuck with being perfect. He is stuck with being perfect and beautiful and all-satisfying, all-sufficient, all-wise. This is what makes him God. And if he is not perfect, and his words can't be trusted, his perfect love will not satisfy. You can't trust his promises. They will not sustain you. Eternity is a sham. All of these things that can just flood your mind. This is a big deal. Romans 9, where we are, is a big deal. I'm hoping to labor to say this is worth the hard work it's going to take to understand this passage. Because the main aim today is, has the word of God failed? That's what's being called into question. Has the word of God failed? 
Why is it being called into question? As Pastor Ron Jure preached wonderfully last week, Romans 9, 1-5, Paul is weeping over his Jewish brothers and sisters. Why? Because they have had so much opportunity. They have, according to the scriptures, they have the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the worship and the promises. They even have the patriarchs, the founding fathers, and the Messiah is coming through their lineage. And the result is they have rejected the Messiah. Jesus, who came as a Jew in the flesh, has been rejected. And if you reject Jesus, you are separated from him. You are not reconciled to God, and God in turn is justly against you. Paul was tearfully grieving over the fact that the majority of his Jewish kinsmen, brothers and sisters according to the flesh, are separated from God. Verse 6 says, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. Why did he shift to such a serious objection right there? He writes this because if the Jews are the recipients of all covenants, the giving of the law, the patriarchs, even the Messiah, if they're the recipients of all these things and all these promises have been made to them, and yet what I see right before me is the vast majority of Jewish individuals have rejected Jesus, then it appears as if God's promises aren't sticking. They failed. If God's word has promised that Israel is God's people, and therefore that Jews will be God's children, then God's word has failed. And let's just hit rewind. Every promise we've read in the book of Romans cannot be trusted. The great eight that led us to the top of the mountain, if God's word has failed, you cannot take those as yours. You don't know which ones are going to make it, which ones don't, if God's word has failed. This is serious. And yet, I wouldn't be up here if his word has failed. How do we know God's word has not failed? How do we know God's word is dependable? What we're going to see in this text is that we can know, look at, and rest in his sure promises and we can rest in his sovereign purposes. Paul is going to labor to show us God's sure promises and God's sovereign purposes, which take the objection, God's word has failed, and say it has not failed and it never will. So, we should die. Number one, rest in his sure promises. First of all, Paul seems to need to correct a misunderstanding. People read things into promises all the time. When you read something, you think it says one thing, and many times when you're reading it, you misread it because you're really wanting it to turn out well for your situation. And so we can do that all the time. And this seems to be what the Jews have done. It's that moment where you're like, Oh, that's what it meant. This is that moment right now. Oh, Paul is laboring to describe that oh moment. So in order to do so, we need to say what the promise is not, which is namely their misunderstanding of it, and then what the promise 
is, what the promise is not. Look at verse 6 with me. It says, for not all, so, but it's not as though the word of God has failed, and the first word is for. That means because. I'm going to give you the reason that the word of God has not failed. Number one, it's not all who are descended from Israel that belong to Israel. Does that mess your head up just a little bit? I think we need some adjectives that might help us. The adjectives are this. Let's reread it, putting in two adjectives. For it's not all of those who are descended from physical Israel that belong to spiritual Israel. He goes on, verse 7, not all are spiritual children of Abraham because they are his physical offspring. You follow the argument. The promise is not that everyone that came from Abraham is going to be a child of God spiritually. That's not the promise. He's saying not all who are physical Israel become spiritual Israel. Not all who are physically descended from Abraham will be spiritually, quote, Abraham's children, which is a way to describe the spiritual children of God. He's making a distinction between physical and spiritual. And so he goes on in verse 7. He says, not all the children of Abraham, that's the spiritual category, because they are his physical offspring, but, and now he quotes Genesis 21, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. It's in Genesis 21 when he is speaking about what is going to happen with Abraham's first son. I don't know if you knew that he has two biological sons, one with Hagar and one to come with Sarah. At this point in the passage, he's got Isaac. So he has two biological sons. Now, Genesis 21 tells us that the promise is not coming through Ishmael, the first biological son, but it is through Isaac, the second biological son, through which the promises will come. John Calvin, in his commentary, Romans 9, he says, So therefore, it must be that all natural sons, all biological children, are not to be regarded as the seed, but that the promise is specially fulfilled in only some, and that it does not belong commonly or equally to everyone, because Ishmael didn't get it, and Isaac does. That's the reason this passage is here. That's why he quotes the Old Testament, is to say, I'm not just making this up. You read it in your scriptures in Genesis 21, that although Ishmael was a biological son, that is a physical child of Abraham, he does not get the promises. Isaac does. So only some who are biological descendants of Abraham will get the promises. You follow the logic so far? They thought the promise was, if you're Jewish, that is, if you're biologically a descendant of Abraham, you're secure. He's saying that was never the promise. God never promised that all those who are physical Israel will have the benefits of his promises. He never promised that all those who are physical descendants of Abraham will receive the promises made to Abraham. 
On the contrary, how do you get the promises? Paul has been laboring all through this letter to say, you're a child of Abraham if you have faith like Abraham. That's what makes you a child of God. And we know he is speaking of salvation here because look at verse 8, the next verse in the passage. This means, <laughs> it's always helpful, doesn't happen a ton, but when he gives a this means category, that means I'm about to tell you what I'm trying to say. This means that it's not the children of the flesh. It's not the children of physical descendants who are the children of God. That's the spiritual category. But it's the children of the promise who are the children of God. They are counted as God's spiritual offspring. We know he's speaking of salvation because later on in verse 11, he goes on to say, if you look at verse 11, he says, it's not because of works. This is a classic phrase by Paul that sets faith over against works. This sense of this is dealing with how does somebody become a child of God? Salvation. So, summary, what the promise is not. The Jews thought they were secure because of something external. Their daddy was Abraham. They thought that was enough. Paul said that was never the promise. God did and does have a special plan for ethnic Israel, but not ethnic Israel indiscriminately. Not ethnic Israel according to the flesh, but ethnic Israel who refuses to bow the knee to any other God and who trusts in Christ alone as the Messiah. We have a version of this today. What externally might make us secure? What externally might be something we lean on to say, no, we are good. Where we grew up. Pastor Ron, you were talking about that last. Geography doesn't save you, but so many believe because they have been around the things of God, they're okay. All churchgoers are eternally secure, might be something that some people say. Or, all those who are kind are eternally secure, might be something that some people say. Or, all those who are better than X or Y. The worst of humanity is really who we pick out and say, I'm better, and therefore I'm eternally secure. That's not how it works. If you notice, every attempt that I just mentioned to say you're eternally secure necessitates a removal of Jesus as the grounds of your eternal security. It's what you do externally. Your adherence to rules. Your kindness. Jesus is replaced by the Jews. Jesus is replaced by ethnicity. Jesus is replaced by religious deeds. Jesus could be replaced with human kindness. Jesus could be replaced with human comparison. But Jesus is made second, or at worst, he's totally disregarded. Our security rests in Jesus alone. Jesus alone. He's our only hope. The Bible says that all the promises find their yes and amen in Jesus. Jesus crucified. Jesus risen from the dead. He secured all of the promises. 
He was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Everything hinges upon our trust in Jesus. It's not how we perform, and it's not our ethnicity. It's nothing else that secures us in the Jews miss the promise. So what is the promise? Look at verse 8 with me again. It's not that the children of the flesh, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Verse 9, for this is what the promise said, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. The promise was not made to all of Abraham's biological children. It wasn't made to Hagar, but to Sarah. And to her son in her old age, whom we know as Isaac. Here's the promise. What is the promise? It was that through Abraham's offspring, the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Israel, would come the Messiah. And by faith in him, God will make a people, give a land, and bless the nations. By faith. The faith of Abraham. That's what Romans chapter 4 was. The labor. Our faith. Is what saves. This is the promise. Faith in Jesus. And then if you look at this quote. Which is a quote from Genesis 18. It says about this time next year. I will return and Sarah shall have a son. That's also part of the promise. That when God makes his promise, he will always be present to complete his promise. The promise is that he will bring Messiah through the ethnic line of the Jews and that that Messiah will be the savior of all people who trust in him. That's the promise. But the promise is also that he will be present to fulfill all of his promises and to execute everything that he says. I promise you I'm going to do that. That's why he quoted this. It says, I will return. There's many passages that say that he would deal with Sarah and that through Sarah a baby's going to come. But this one he chooses and says, the one, I will return. I'm going to show up on the scene in a unique and special way and fulfill the promise. So, what we see as we go through the book of Romans is dealing with a lot of things regarding God's sovereignty and salvation. But he revisits this idea of the promise made to Israel in Romans chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. And in Romans chapter 11, verses 1 to 6, he kind of gives the punchline of this first idea that we can rest sure in the promises of God. What is the promise? How do we view the fact that the majority of ethnic Israel is not trusting in the Messiah? Here's what Paul says. Ask them, has God rejected his people, that is the people of Israel? By no means. Paul says, I'm a Jew. I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, which is what we'll get into in the second part of this passage today. But do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your 
prophets, they have demolished your altars, and alone I am left, and they seek my life. What was God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant, Paul says, chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. This is the summary of our passage today. The promise was never made to ethnic Israel indiscriminately, but by all those who would trust in Jesus, God promises that he will secure a remnant of ethnic Jews until the end who will not bow the knee to a false god, but who will trust in the Messiah. But when you see that happening, it is not because of the goodness of Israel, but the grace of God. So, before we move on to the final point, the charge then is, has the word of God failed? No, they just misunderstood the promise. But when you know what the promise is, on the contrary, the word of God is being fulfilled right in front of them. So as a reader, you're supposed to say, I can bank on the promises of God, and therefore I can rest secure in the promises of God. It's meant to say, first of all, make sure you know the promises, right? Because Israel did not know fully the promise. They thought the promise had to do with totally their ethnicity. So, it's a warning to us. We are being called to spend time in the Word of God to know the promises of God so that we know that what we're banking on is right and true. This is where the health, wealth, prosperity gospel totally gets it wrong. They believe the promise is, if you trust in Jesus, you will not suffer. And if you are suffering, it's because your faith is weak. And yet, all throughout the scriptures, that's not the case. Last I checked, our very Savior, whose salvation, who our salvation rests upon, he suffered. And it was not because of a lack of faith, but because his faith was so strong. And we are promised that we will share in his sufferings. And our suffering will make us more like Jesus. We have to know his promises so that we can rest in his promises. But let's rest in his sure promises. That's what made Romans 8 so beautiful and so amazing. They are sure promises. The promises in the scriptures of, I'm going to save and I will sustain. He will Get to the end, those who trust in Christ. I will be with you always. I will supply all of your needs. All of your pain is not throwaway. I'm working all things together for good for those who love me and who are called according to his purpose. He says, my steadfast love will not cease. It won't diminish. It won't change. He says, his mercies are new every single morning. Great is his faithfulness. We can take it to the bank. Take him at his word. And this passage is really pressing in on us that when our experience... And when our feelings seem to run against the promises, which is exactly what the Jews were wrestling with, right? They have rejected, Paul is like, some of you are looking at a group of people who have rejected the promises, and it looks as if the promises have failed. When your experiences laid against the promises of God, make it seem as if the promises of God have failed. Do not trust your feelings or experiences, but on the contrary, trust 
the words of God. His words are dependable. Listen to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. Speaking of Abraham's faith and quoting the very passage that was quoted here in Romans 9, it says this, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up his only son, Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. He was about to kill his son, the one of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That's the very passage quoted, Genesis 21, in our passage today. What did Abraham do? He did not trust his own brain. He did not trust his own feelings. He did not trust his own experience. It says he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which spiritually, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. God kept his promise. And through Isaac, the people came. This is our response to a sure promise. God can be trusted. His words have always been true. Not one word has failed. But if you're anything like me, my feelings have failed multiple times a day. And so, the marker of the promise made to Abraham is faith. Rest. Trust. Trust God to do what he says he's going to do. It's less about Isaac and Jewishness and more about trusting God to do what he says he will do. So, has the word of God failed? No. Because the promise is not made to all ethnic Israel indiscriminately, but to those who have faith in the Messiah. But how else can we know that his word is not failed? Well, his word is dependable. All the promises of Romans 8 are ours. The entirety of Scripture is ours in Christ Jesus because, this is the second argument, people coming to faith in Jesus rest not on works, but on God's sovereign purposes. His word, his purposes, cannot be thwarted by people's depravity or by people's fickle choices. Do you see how that matters right now? If people's fickleness, your high feelings, if our choices and our sinful depravity can uproot and overturn the purposes of God, then there's no way God's word can be completed and be fulfilled because we would screw it up all the time. There's no way. Paul has to labor to say, not only did they misunderstand the promise, and therefore God's word has stayed sure, but we know God's word will be faithful because God is sovereign and not one of his purposes has ever been thwarted. So we must rest not only in his sure promises, but in his sovereign purposes. Now, really quickly, we need some definition time, okay? What does sovereign mean? What does sovereign mean? John Frame says, sovereign, it means that you're a ruler or a king with authority, okay? So when you say God is sovereign, it means that he is in control and he has the authority to be in control. 
He's sovereign. Now, when you read throughout the scriptures, you really don't see the word sovereign much, if at all, depending on translations in the scriptures. So then I would get a little weak need, like, oh, we're throwing in a word that's not really found in the scriptures. Well, let me help you. When God is called Yahweh, or the Lord, which is used over 7,000 times, he means he is all authoritative, the boss, the king, the ruler over all things. So now we can rest and say, when we say God is sovereign, he's described that way, especially Jesus being described that way all throughout the Bible. He is the Lord, sovereign. He's compared to a king all throughout the scriptures. He has full authority, full power, and in control. Now, if we say that he is Lord and sovereign and in control, do, do the scriptures teach that everything that he sovereignly chooses to do with his authority will come to pass? Because some kings can have you know, authority and control, and they can be overturned, right? We have kingdoms all the time, all over the world. So, is what God says and does always efficacious? Does it always come to fulfillment? The answer is yes. God's control is always efficacious. He always accomplishes what he intends. Nothing thwarts his purposes. If I'm in your shoes, I would say, you better show it to me. Well, let's go to the Bible. Psalm 115.3. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135, 6. Whatever the Lord, sovereign, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Whatever he pleases at the bottom of the ocean, it happens. Whatever he pleases to happen in the skies, it happens. Whatever he pleases to happen on earth, it happens. Whatever he pleases to happen in the universe beyond our earth, it happens. Isaiah 14, 24-27. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. That I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains trample him underfoot, and his yoke shall depart from them, and his burden from their shoulder. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations, for the Lord of hosts has purpose, and who will annul it? Answer? Nobody. That's what you should have said. No one. His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Nobody. That's right. Isaiah 43, 13. Also, henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work. Who can turn it back? The answer is nobody. Isaiah 55, 11. And so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it will accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. This is why we preach the word of God. Week in and week out. Why it's commanded to be read aloud and proclaimed is because not one of his words comes back void. All those are Old Testament passages. So let's just go to the very last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 3 verse 7. 
And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David. Let's describe this king. Who opens and no one will shut. And who shuts and no one opens. This is the God that we serve. Sovereign. In control. And everything that he sets his mind to will happen. So what's the argument of Paul? Paul's argument here is that the word of God has not failed because God is sovereign. And when God is sovereign, it means he is in control of all things. And he has authority over all things. And everything that he decrees will come about. But we must add a qualifier to help us understand his sovereignty because the text does. If you look at verse 11, it says, and we'll get to some of these finer points in a second, but it says, though they were not yet born and had not done any, or had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's, what's the next word? Purpose of election. We're going to talk about election here in a second, but God's purpose. His sovereignty is not cold. It's purposeful. Pastor John Piper says in his new book on providence, providence is God's purposeful sovereignty. He has fatherly care, wise rule, just rule. The adjectives we put in front of sovereignty turn it into providence. So when I say this passage is teaching us to rest in God's sovereign purposes, we are moving his control out of what might be the temptation that he is cold in his control into the fatherly care of our sovereign God. And when we say his sovereign purposes, we are moving his authority out of heavy-handedness to wise and just and tender caring rule. Listen to how it's described in the book of Exodus. The reason I go to Exodus is because next week as Pastor Travis preaches for us, Paul goes to Exodus. But listen to how Exodus describes God's sovereign purposes. Exodus 3, 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So, is God's purpose going to be thwarted by a king who has a mighty hand? No. God says, I will stretch out my mighty hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he might let you go? No. He will. It will happen. His purposes will not be thwarted. But in case you tempted to read that as God is cold, Listen to what he says in Exodus chapter 6. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, the Sovereign, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Our Sovereign God cares about your burdens. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am 
the Lord. I am the sovereign. The sovereign who has purposeful sovereignty. Filled with fatherly care and wise rule and justice. So if I could summarize it, I would summarize this whole idea of God's sovereign purposes. And I'm laboring here, I know. Because this is what is the linchpin in the argument. What secures us from thinking that God's word has failed is God's sovereignty over salvation. Election. So what are God's sovereign purposes? God's right and power, his authority, to control all things with his wise, good, and loving presence for his glory. That's the definition of God's sovereign purposes. God's right and power to control all things with his wise, good, and loving presence for his glory. It's not as though the word of God has failed. It hasn't failed because God is sovereign. No human fickleness will uproot God's purposes. You might say, but my eyes see it differently. It looks like everything is unraveling. It looks like God hasn't kept his word. Paul is laboring to say his word is true. Trust his word. Before we look at these last couple of verses, Pastor John Piper talked about a, a daily practice, almost daily practice of his, which was really an encouragement to me. He talked about a, a personal discipline. He said that almost every day he gets on his knees in the morning and he just says this phrase, I am not God. I'm not God. God, I just want to say before you, I'm not God. I'm not you. I don't change people. I don't want my will. I want yours. I don't know everything. I'm not God. Pastor John said, I just want to get low, even if it's for 10 seconds, and say, I am not God. If I could get more people to bow their hearts and say, I am not God, and to be happy in saying it, my life would fulfill its purpose. And dear friends, I just invite you, as a child of the King, to be able to pause and to say every day, I'm not God. I love you being God. I trust you as God. Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is my treasure, and I trust that all the promises are yes in him. I'm not God. So now when we read Romans 9, 10 to 13, we understand what Paul is saying. Verse 10, Paul says this, For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah's going to have a son. You hear the sovereign control? That's why I needed to labor, because it, it would be lost on you if you didn't understand. His sovereignty includes his presence, and then what he says is going to happen. That's what that verse is meaning to communicate. I will return, and Sarah's going to have a son. Even though, as it said, she's as good as dead. She's going to have a son. So, not through Ishmael, but through Isaac. 
But to highlight this point even deeper, he picks one woman with two children at the same time, with twins in her stomach. So there might be some argument that this was, you know, Sarah had more favor than Hagar had. And so now he's picking one woman with twins to further help us understand this promise, this plan is happening because God said it would happen, not because of some condition in the human that forced his hand to act. You follow? So he goes on to say, and not only so with Sarah and Isaac, but also when Rebecca, Isaac's wife, had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, and then there's just like... It's really bad writing, okay? If you write like this for your English paper, you're not going to get a good grade. It's like he stops in the middle of his thought and just starts adding other phrases. And so he's like, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. Why did I say that? Well, in order that you might see that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, and then he picks back up the sentence. She was told, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I love and Esau I hate it. What's the point? The older one? In that custom, the birthright went to the firstborn. This is scandalous. It's not how it was supposed to be. And yet, who's the promise made to? The secondborn. Furthermore, Surely the promise was made to Jacob because he was better than Esau. He says, qualifier, before they had done either good or bad. This was not based upon their goodness or their badness. Why was it done that way? In order that God's sovereign purpose of election might continue, not because of works, not because of humanity, but because of God's sovereign calling. That's what election means. It's his choosing. J.R. Packer says, the verb elect means to select or to choose out. And the biblical doctrine of election is that before creation, God selected out of the human race foreseen as fallen those whom he would redeem, bring to faith, justify and glorify in and through Jesus Christ. This divine choice is an expression of free and sovereign grace, unconstrained, unconditional, not merited by any of its subjects. Paul labors. Say so it wasn't according to birth order. It wasn't according to human goodness. It was because of God's sovereign choosing. Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 9 describes this, and I think it's probably the best description of election that I have seen. It says this, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. So you can hear the boast. Israelites saying, We were greatest in number. That's why you chose. No, you were actually smallest. So, you were small. But it was because the Lord loves you. Follow the logic? The Lord chose you and loved you because he loves you. That's, that's not an answer. And yet it's an answer. The 
Lord chose you and loved you because he loves you. And because he loves you, he is keeping his oath sworn to the fathers that the Lord has brought you out of the mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful one who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations. The argument of Deuteronomy 7 is the same argument of Romans 9. He loved you because he loved you, and because he loved you, not one of his words will fail. That's the argument. Not one of them. Charles Spurgeon says this. He, you could tell he was asked, why preach such a profound so profound a doctrine as election. Why preach on this? And he says, I answer because it's in God's word. And whatever is in God's word is to be preached. And so you read it all over the Bible. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before we were good or bad, before the foundation of the world, God made a plan to redeem sinful humanity. Charles Spurgeon goes on, and this is one of my favorite quotes about election, and I think this resonates with anyone who has come to faith in Jesus. And honestly, almost everybody who comes to faith in Jesus talks like they believe the doctrine of election. God saved me. They either pray that way, God do this, God save me. It means you need God to do something beyond what your will can do. Here's the quote. I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born, or else he would never have chosen me afterwards. <laughs> and he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. So I'm forced to accept the great biblical doctrine of election. Make sure, no mistake, that you understand the argument. The word of God has failed if God is not sovereign. That's the argument he's making. The word of God has failed. Friends, this is very personal to me. I remember going to chapel one time when I was a student in seminary. I was a youth pastor at the time, and I took my teenagers to a revival weekend. It was during the week, actually. And we were sitting there, and the preacher preached a sermon on wheat and tares. And he said this. He says, if you're 99% sure of your salvation, you're 100% lost. My teenagers that I was there with didn't faze them. They felt really secure in their walk with Jesus. Me, the leader, I was struck. Because I knew I had doubted before. I still have doubts at times. I also knew that I wasn't perfect. And I still not. And friends, it led to a massive crisis of belief. I mean, tears upon tears were shed. And then I remember reading Ephesians chapter 1, 
reading some understanding of that passage when it says, before the foundation of the world, God made a people. And then it became very clear. If I could save myself by my own doing, then I could unsave myself by my own doing. But if God had saved me, based upon his sovereign love, then that's why he will keep me to the end. And the fact that I wanted to please him, even in all of my sin and all of my mess, was evidence that God had worked in my heart. It was not based upon external. It was based upon my simple childlike faith that I trust Jesus and I want to follow him. It's evidence that God had saved me. Made me his child. And what God begins, he completes. I cannot thwart his purposes. Election is not the gospel, but it guards it. It guards it. It holds it. And it's meant to be such a precious gift to those who maybe were like me. Who sometimes doubt and wonder how I can be so secure in Christ. Paul says here, you can rest secure because all of God's promises will never fail. And what he has begun, he will complete. You will not thwart his purposes. Election, this idea of God's sovereignty and salvation is just one part of his sovereignty. We've already seen that he is sovereign over all things, even in suffering, and that he is working all things for good. And so this is a very practical doctrine for you. And when you're looking at a devastating life right in front of you, you're looking at pain upon pain, here's one thing that you can know. God's promises have not been thwarted. He has not left you. And in his timing, he will deliver. But until he does, he will always be with you. He will never leave you. Even if that deliverance is with your death, you'll be delivered into his loving arms forever and ever. Because God's word has not and will not ever fail. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can trust your word. And I just ask that in this moment, for all of us who doubt, for all of us who look at our circumstances and it feels so impossible that we can continue, we can endure. I pray that we would remember your word. Nothing is impossible for you. Father, I pray that we would, as a church, make it our aim to remind one another of your promises. That we would give one another the word of God over and over. Not one of your promises have failed. Father, I ask that we would memorize your promises. We would read your word and we would bank our life upon your word because your word doesn't fail. And so I pray that you would give us a heart that is set free from anxiety, which usually comes when I try to think way beyond today into the future and I get overwhelmed. But I pray that what dominates our thinking today is that we rest in your sure promises and we rest in your sovereign purposes. You do whatever you please. And you do it for your glory. 
which is our I'm so thankful that you can be trusted. I'm thankful that you are building your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so right now I pray, oh God, that as we bow for just a moment of stillness and then as we sing, I pray that we would give you whatever we're kind of holding on to. We would surrender whatever we've tried to take control of. Father, help us as people to understand there's this massive mystery between human responsibility and design sovereignty, divine sovereignty, and that we've got to work, we've got to act, we've got to labor to preach the gospel, we've got to read your word. These are this is our responsibility. There'll be consequences if we don't. But Father, I just pray that the hope is not in our action, but in your sovereign goodness. And so I pray one of the actions that we do in this moment is surrender. rest in your sure promises and sovereign purposes. Thank you that your word hasn't failed. Right now, in just a few minutes, surrender to the Lord your life, your heart, whatever it is that he has brought uniquely to your mind. If you're not a follower of Jesus for the first time today, do not wait. Surrender your life to Christ. We'll be happy to talk with you more about that, but in this moment, reflect and we will sing.